0: I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Arvind Singhal. Arvind is the Samuel Shirley and Edna Holt Marston Endowed Professor of Communication at the University of Texas at El Paso. In this episode, we're talking about his use of a positive deviance approach to public health interventions. He's written three books, more than two dozen case studies and articles on the use of positive deviance. And he's implemented this approach to social change in the midst of natural disasters, disability rights, domestic violence, and even family planning. The reach of his work spans numerous countries from Japan, India, the Netherlands, and and the US. Arvind, it is an honor to call you both a friend and a colleague. And I'm delighted that you're joining listeners and I for today's episode of Defining Moments. I consider you a mentor. Uh, Long before I met you in person, through your writing, you inspired me to think about what role academics can play in working alongside publics who are interested in fostering progressive change, Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to learn alongside you. Um, when you were a colleague at Ohio University and have continued to learn from your work. So thank you for your presence in my life. And more importantly, your presence in the academy and what you do as a boundary spanner with the publics that you serve.
1: Lynn, thank you. It's an absolute honor. It's been a wonderful journey uh, with you as a colleague uh, at Ohio University and Mm -hmm. beyond. And I know it will continue.
0: As I noted in my introduction, you are internationally renowned for your work in public health communication interventions. And in particular, over the past 15 years, you have become a leader in the positive deviance movement. For listeners who are unfamiliar with public health work, generally, and, and positive deviance specifically, can you talk to us about the general nature of what it is that you do?
1: Yes, there's so many different ways of answering uh, this question, Lynn, and thank you for the question. I guess the key word here is public, and, uh, which means you are uh, talking about the health uh, of somebody that uh, goes beyond you and usually includes a large number of people. And then the point of interconnection really is how do you interact uh, with the public, whether it's about uh, taking shots to uh, eliminate or obviate uh, polio or uh, uh, you know, preventing, let's say, the spread of HIV and Uh, aids, and uh, there's no formula uh, to do it. There are theories, and uh, I have always been very interested in uh, the communicative process uh, through which such ideas are communicated uh, in a respectful manner uh, in uh, ways that they can create the conditions for those publics. To uh, take meaningful uh, decisions, uh, which hopefully enhance the quality of life, not just for them and their families, but, uh, you know, for the larger uh, public at uh, large. So I think that notion of uh, going beyond telling, this is something that is good for you and you need to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, bringing in that notion of uh, uh, respecting uh, the public, their uh, cultural values, their uh, to create the conditions, as I said, for them to themselves uh, chart a path, and that's a path of uh, struggles, and so one is always looking for: are there more efficient, more humane uh, ways uh, to to do this uh, and i think the introduction to positive deviance uh, for me is a way to uh, address some of these uh, very difficult uh, issues uh, for the well-being of uh, people in humane ways mm-hmm. in ways which respects uh, uh, the local
2: mm-hmm.
0: i love your framing of health and well-being as relational, Mm -hmm. as communal experiences. Mm -hmm. It's easy to consider an individual struggling with diabetes and the insulin perhaps that that one person takes, but it's really a familial, a social experience. This isn't just about one person. And what I hear you saying is Your life work has been dedicated to really emphasizing the public, the communal nature of health. And the way that you do that is by working alongside people.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, well said. And um, since you raised the issue of diabetics and insulin, uh, and perhaps one way of bringing this conversation home is that in – a uh, recent project uh, in El Paso County uh, whereby I had the privilege and opportunity to work with uh, one of our students, a graduate student, uh, to uh, implement a positive deviant study uh, on diabetic management. Uh, we found this interactional and communal perspective to be so key to Uh, Health and well being. So, to illustrate, uh, this is my colleague Claudia Boyd, uh, who herself is a diabetic. Um, She's the first person to acknowledge that, who has a a family that uh, uh, has had genes uh, Mm -hmm. that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, predispose um, family members to diabetes. And she became acutely aware that in El Paso County, Uh, If you are a man or a woman over the age of 40, and we are talking about type 2 diabetes, your chances of uh, not managing it uh, very well are very, very high. And we know it's a chronic condition, uh, highly debilitating as uh, uh, time uh, takes its toll. So Claudia asked a very positively deviant question, and the question was simply, are there men and women over the age of 40 who are uh, Latino Hispanic, who live in a particular zip code that is the poorest of the poor zip code, which right. means they don't have access, uh, ready access to health services. They may or may not have medical insurance, mm-hmm. but who have, and this is the positive part, manage their diabetes well with certain measures, like their A1C levels being less than six point five, uh, with No or low medication? Mm. Now, this is a question that you typically never ask because you would assume, if you are interested in prediction and control, that precisely the variables that Claudia laid out would predispose you to not managing your diabetes well. But the twist comes, the positive deviance twist. Uh, The deviant part is the statistical anomaly of somebody who is actually managing their diabetes well. And, you know, um, the answer that she found was that indeed there are a few people, very few outliers, one or 2% of the pool of those who were diagnosed with diabetes that she was dealing with, the so-called deviants and the positive ones because they manage their diabetes well. And then she, of course, was looking for what is that they do that is uncommon, that makes it possible for them. And Lynn, the first thing that she found, and this is, you know, you have to sort of hold your breath, is what they did that was uncommon, which allowed them to manage their diabetes well, was Mm, self-disclosure. The moment they get a diagnosis, they... Tell others that I'm diabetic. And you may say, oh, that's it. So the best health prescription, uh, her work found, uh, that a doctor could write is not for metformin or for insulin, but say, please share. Because what that does is it creates this communal interactional space, an ethic of care. So that it's not just you who bears the burden of managing your diabetes, but it's your loved ones, your family members, your friends. Uh-huh. And it's a one-time disclosure, it's, uh, which in some ways serves you very well. Because now your three-year-old granddaughter, while you're digging into your favorite uh, slice of cheesecake, uh, can walk up to you, maybe coached by her mother, and wave her finger at you and say, Mm-mm, "Papi." Mm-hmm. So it's this communal, interactional, relational nature of uh, the ecology uh, of um, our communicative networks with loved and dear ones, which makes a difference. So in some ways, it sort of brings it home for me.
0: Oh yes, and I can imagine too, that that self-disclosure, the creation of this interactional space that can be held also allows for the changing of familial rituals. So if you need to change patterns of eating, I suspect that you're more likely to live well and, and to eat well if you're doing that with other people who are aware of what might be in your best interest and who change their eating habits, too. True. right? So your family meals shift because people are aware that, that this is what it means to, to be your best self.
1: True. It also means that a friend of yours who likes to walk in the morning may text you and say, uh, I'm coming. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it just creates beyond the dining table an ethic of care. Also, in some ways, uh, a gaze uh, mm-hmm. yeah. in a, you know, there are lots of eyes and lots mm-hmm. of hands uh, mm-hmm. and lots of hearts mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that are uh, caring uh, for you, including your three-year-old granddaughter who insists mm-hmm. that you be present for her graduation.
0: Ah. Oh. Amen. 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 So I want to dig deep, please. Um, with this notion of positive deviance because I suspect bringing those two ideas together um, is something that's new and and refreshing, perhaps for the audience. You typically think of deviance in a negative way as something that's stigmatized. But what I hear you saying is that you're looking for the outliers, the deviants in situations that are characterized by difficulty, by perhaps a lack of resources, vulnerability. You're trying to figure out from an asset-based perspective, what are they doing well mm-hmm. that allows them mm-hmm. to thrive? And then how do you amplify that? Mm-hmm. Am I am I getting yeah.
1: – Precisely. So in this case, if you go back to Claudia's case, uh, Claudia is asking against all odds for those who are at the highest risk, Mm -hmm. men and women over the age of 40, Hispanic, Latino, who don't have access to medical care, who are there some who have figured out a way to manage their diabetes. Mm -hmm. And they are indeed uh, statistical deviants. So Mm -hmm. they're not deviants as in the sociological sense of, (laughs) oh, this is something that is not good. Uh, We are looking at... uh, deviance from the norm, mm-hmm. uh, but of the kind that is desirable. And, uh, and then once you can discover uh, what is it that they're doing that's uncommon, and this word uncommon is critical, uh, they must be doing something, doing something, because they don't have access to any extra resources. In fact, they are at the highest risk. So there is some behavioral component of something that they are doing or something that's being done to them. Uh, in a communal relational sense that enables them to find better Mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so if you can discover what that is through a process which the positive deviance approach allows you to, and the results will always surprise you. Mm -hmm. They have to Mm -hmm. because it's not a neat regression equation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've asked an implausible question, a highly improbable question, if not an impossible question. And so, if the answer is there is somebody who's done it, then it's the who done it. What the heck are they doing? Mm-hmm. And it has to be something very simple because, against all odds, they have done it. And if it is something very simple, and if it is something that's working in a socio-cultural milieu, then by its very nature, it should be, logically speaking, uh, replicable to others. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody can do it in their own context and do it without any extra resources, it should be accessible to others, too. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when were you first introduced To the positive deviance approach. And I I ask that from a place of, right, historically, when I first became familiar with your work, I was introduced to a diffusion of innovations model for approaching those seemingly intractable public health challenges. When along the way did you start to integrate this positive deviance approach?
1: It's very... uh Good question that I've reflected on deeply, uh, Lynn. Uh, So, I was very fortunate to uh, be a student of and have as my mentor uh, Everett Rogers, well known globally for his work on the diffusion of innovations. I am told that his book, The Diffusion of Innovations, is the second most cited work in the social sciences. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I had the honor and privilege. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I came to Ohio University was because it was one of the very few programs where I'd interviewed where I could teach a Mm -hmm. doctoral-level seminar on the diffusion of innovation. So I came in trained as a Mm -hmm, mm do-gooder, that if you can find the right kinds of new ideas, practices, and find the communication channels, and if you understand the social system, you you can make diffusion possible. Uh, So it was a very um, uh, externally driven mindset of do-gooding. Nothing wrong with it. There's tremendous value uh, in it. Uh, I was certainly Mm. trained in a tradition which uh, uh, had been quite uh, influential in terms of praxis. And then in 2004, after 14 years of teaching this, doctoral seminar and becoming very interested in narratives as a way of reaching large number of people, which is what you'd like to do if you are in the business of innovation diffusion. You want to get to a, a lot of people, and you know that's my interest in entertainment education and narratives. Mm-hmm. But in 2004, I was invited to a meeting um, by the Harvard School of uh, Health Systems Improvement. It's the day that Barack Obama Gave the speech uh, at mm. the National Democratic uh, Convention mm-hmm. uh, that I first time heard the term positive deviance because present at this meeting was uh, Jerry Sternin uh, it was in his mid sixties uh, he had just retired from Save the Children he and his wife Monique mm-hmm. whom I call my gurus mm. uh, had put into practice uh, the idea of positive deviance in Vietnam to combat malnutrition. And Jerry spoke at this meeting for five minutes and it completely flipped my world upside down because this is not the way that I was trained to look for a variation in practice Mm -hmm. which was delivering better outcomes and to identify it within an existing social system Against all odds, so this was diffusion of a very different kind. Mm-hmm. This is diffusion from the inside out, mm-hmm. as opposed to from the outside in. And it made complete sense, because here I was talking about how you need to be receptive to the social system, how you need to understand, you know the cultural values, and positive deviance just in its framework, takes care of those issues because it is a very local way of intervening. Because somebody out here for years, for decades, has solved the problem. Positive deviants exist. You don't manufacture them. Mm -hmm. And they've existed. Mm -hmm. And it just brings in a fundamental belief that there is somebody out here today and has been here for years, and they've been undiscovered. It's like a treasure hunt. Mm
2: -hmm. They've
1: solved the problem. The wisdom is here. Can we find what is it that's making a difference? And once you can find it, and who finds it is key. Mm -hmm. Do you as a researcher find it? Or do you create the conditions for the community themselves to figure out what's working? And that self-discovery of, oh, there's somebody out here like me who has solved the problem, representing a social proof as opposed to an external agent coming in and telling you this is good. So I think it was uh, there were so many flips, mental flips, with positive deviance as I heard it and then internalized it. And I remember walking up to Jerry Sternen after I first heard about positive deviance and said, Jerry, I want you to be my guru. I want, you, I want to apprentice with you. And Mm -hmm. he said, oh, no, you know, I've come back home to retire uh, (laughs) after serving overseas uh, in many different parts of the world. And I said, great, you know, then I can really have you if you're retired. Mm -hmm. So I brought him to Ohio University in 2005. Um, And we had a 100-person workshop in Central Classroom Building. Uh, And uh, it just opened a way for me to act out in practice and learn positive deviance through opportunities created by Jerry and his wife, Monique, who were very gracious. They opened doors. Uh, And so the last few years that I was here at Ohio University, I had begun to incorporate uh, Mm -hmm. this new way of thinking about innovation diffusion.
0: So it really has flipped the way you envision and enact your role,
1: right? Absolutely.
0: You're no longer the expert diffusing of best practices.
1: Absolutely. It is a very, it's perhaps the most liberating thing in terms Mm -hmm. of a defining moment for me. Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. now you can say to yourself that uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I have the faith that in this community there is somebody who does. And Mm -hmm. if I can create the conditions to figure out who those people are and have the community self-discover for themselves what is it that they are doing that is uncommon and that's making the difference, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then we've got something to play with. Mm -hmm. And it's the mystery of this enterprise. It's the Who Done It. It's the Sherlock Holmes. You know h- how come? Mm-hmm. Impossible, improbable, mm-hmm. implausible. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: I think such moments in academia are very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it cannot, you cannot but Be changed if you begin to internalize the tenets of the positive deviance approach. It's highly liberating.
0: Hi, folks. Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Arvind Singhal about his use of a positive deviance approach in public health interventions. Arvind is the Samuel Shirley and Edna Holt Marston Endowed Professor of Communication at the University of Texas at El Paso. If you'd like to learn more about his work, I encourage you to go to the Defining Moments Facebook page at DMPodcast WOUB. His co-authored book, Inviting Everyone, Healing Healthcare Through Positive Deviance, is published by Plexus Press, and there's a link to that book on our Facebook. Now back to our conversation. In hearing you talk about your witnessing of Jerry and Monique's work and and the narration of that work in Vietnam and describing that as a defining moment for yourself, A defining moment for me was hearing you narrate your experiences working on a research team interdisciplinary that was addressing the increasing challenge of the development of secondary infections Mm -hmm. in hospital systems common one that that the public might know of is MRSA, mm-hmm. where you go into the hospital to, to have a baby and you leave with an antibiotic-resistant staph infection. This is a pretty significant public health challenge. And the way that you talked about entering into that um, discussion
2: mm-hmm.
0: from an asset-based, uncommon mm-hmm. Trying to identify the outliers who in the midst of these same systems, same resources, mm-hmm. are able to reduce mm-hmm. the infections. That was transforming for me. Yeah. For audiences who aren't familiar mm-hmm. with, with your work and certainly will provide access mm-hmm. and links to those mm-hmm. those chapters. But if you could talk through that mm-hmm. with us, mm-hmm. I think it I hope it will be transforming for our audience as well.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Lynn, for the invitation. So one thing that happened uh, at this uh, meeting uh, when I first met Jerry is it was a three-day meeting, and Jerry talked about positive deviance, uh, I think, on the second day. And on the third day, there were open space sessions. And guess what? I happened to find myself uh, in an open space session with Jerry and maybe about a dozen CEOs, of hospitals who asked Jerry, or were asking him, can we use this approach to solve this highly complex issue of hand washing and hand hygiene compliance? Long story short, a year later, uh, this led to a project uh, through uh, an institute called the Plexus Institute, very interested in the science of complexity. I had become involved uh, with them, that's how I had gotten to uh, meet Jerry. That's the reason I was invited to this conference. And uh, uh, indeed, there were six hospitals who had come on board as part of a project funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation who wanted to experiment with applying positive deviance to address this intractable problem of uh, hospital-acquired infections, mm-hmm. and you can imagine the behavioral issue, which determines the, mm-hmm. uh, the embodiment of an infection, uh, you know, getting uh, to a uh, patient, mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, is hand washing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, hand hygiene uh, compliance. So, six hospitals, I happened to live in Athens, Ohio at that time, which wasn't very far from the VA in Pittsburgh. Uh, I, the VA in Pittsburgh was one of the hospitals. And uh, I became highly involved in asking questions and also documenting as a scribe mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, questions such as Are there uh, housekeepers, janitors? Cooks, chaplains, nurses, doctors, transporters, who have found ways within their communities of practice to find a way to thwart the MRSA or other uh, superbug infections. Now, these questions are typically not asked because you always look. To the Department of Infectious Diseases. And uh, I remember being with uh, the Sternans uh, at a facility where Jerry began by asking a group of over 100 people who had gathered, who here is in charge of infection control? And there were two hands that went up. And one of them was Dr. Muder, who was the chief of infectious diseases, and the other was his nurse, Cheryl Cunningham. And Jerry said instantly that you have a problem. You have a problem. What about uh, the janitor who takes his mop from one room to the other? Hmm. What about the chaplain who takes his Bible, puts it on somebody's heart, and then takes it on to another patient? Mm -hmm. What about the transporter who transports a patient from uh, one unit to the other. Mm -hmm. If you think that the wisdom to solve the problem just lies with infectious disease specialists, you are in great trouble because the virus is Mm. cleverer than that. So we began to ask questions which were never asked before Mm -hmm. because the fundamental belief was that there is perhaps wisdom Mm -hmm. with a chaplain who takes his Bible and puts on little plastic covers and keeps an alcohol swab in his pocket so that before he puts it on another heart, he wipes the plastic. Or the wisdom lies with a transporter who has decided on his own accord that given there's so much touch that happens when you move a patient and their bed from one room to the other, that one way of containing all that infection is to throw a sheet a sterile sheet on top of the patient so that nothing is touching nothing Mm -hmm. and everything is contained. And it was these kinds of questions you discover a janitor who has figured out that every time he uh, dips his mop in soap and water, that he also dips it in chlorine at the same time, Mm. which ensures that. So all these practices, this wisdom was there. A nurse who used her knuckles to press the elevator button, which has hundreds of deadly pathogens in a hospital, a tremendous vector for infection transfer. And we all use usually the tips of our fingers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you use knuckles, and you know, they did a study with glow germs, uh, you reduce your hand as being a vector of infection transfer by 80% Mm. if you just use the knuckles. So these are existing pieces of wisdom that were present, but nobody had ever asked the question that, does this wisdom exist? Mm -hmm. So it Mm -hmm. was that kind of work when you find a medical doctor who refuses to wear a tie who refuses to wear long sleeves, who refuses to wear a jacket, and who certainly refuses his white coat, which is very normative. Mm -hmm. When you find a doctor who says, I do my rounds in a different way, and you say, what the heck does how you do your rounds have to do with infection control? Because most doctors bounce around. You know, you have Mm -hmm. patients who are infected. Uh, They may be in isolation, but, you know, you go where the rooms are. But you find a medical doctor at Billings Clinic in Montana, whom we did, who first visited all the non-infected patients and then very systematically visited the infectious. Mm. So there's no Mm cross-contamination. So just the art of charting your navigational journey on a corridor in a hospital has much to do with infection control, but this was all hidden Mm -hmm. from plain view. So I think what was remarkable about the six hospital study was finding these little itsy bitsy nuggets of wisdom that were already there and to create the conditions for these nuggets to surface. And for the discovery process to be initiated and conducted by the frontline workers so that when they found these, it was something that they could claim as their own. So one way in which positive deviance differs from the usual ways of doing business, Lynn, is you do not believe in the notion of Mm. buy-in. The Mm. fundamental premise of positive deviance is ownership. You are the one who figure out what is happening here that is uncommon and that is making a difference because you are the only person who could know that. A researcher has no clue. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm.
1: no clue that making around in a different way makes a difference Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of the epidemiology of uh, the vector transmission of a disease. But others will know. Other doctors uh-huh. uh, will know. So the self-discovery process, which is highly revealing, and the process whereby which you begin to own that piece of discovered wisdom uh-huh. is absolutely critical. So it's not just what is making the difference, but who discovers it.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I suspect that that local grassroots self-discovery is connected to the sustainability then of the change practice that needs to occur. So it's not just one doctor who is charting his navigational territory in ways that reduces, right? The transmission, but that's a practice that can be shared by others. But when it starts, from the people themselves and not from an outside expert, I suspect that it's more sustainable.
1: Absolutely. you If you own uh, a piece of wisdom that you've self-discovered, you own it, as opposed to you being told this is what you should mm-hmm. be doing. Mm-hmm. And we know that's where the humanity, the respect, mm-hmm. you know, going back to our notions of being interested in communicative processes uh, that uh, have meaning and value uh, for the uh, health and well-being of the public, you Mm -hmm. begin to Mm -hmm. see this uh, come together. So sustainability of a very different kind, too. It's useful to mention here that almost always in positive deviance work, the hero is never the person who is engaging in these deviant behaviors, these uncommon behaviors. It would be very easy for us to say, ah, look at this doctor. The hero in positive deviance work is always the behavior that's Mm. making the difference. Mm -hmm. And that is a very important distinction to make. So when it comes to issues of ownership and sustainability, it's not that you've self-discovered this chaplain doing what he's doing and valorizing the chaplain. Mm -hmm. Because then others will say, you know, that guy is crazy and different anyway. But you valorize the fact that there's a plastic cover. And you valorize, you depersonalize it. Mm. And that is the key in terms of amplification. So it is not just something that you've self-discovered, but you bring it to a level of detachment from the one who is performing to focus on the performance itself. Mm, mm
2: -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. And uh, it makes it it allows you to make it your own as opposed to oh yeah it's this guy who does it.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Arvind I can't help but believe that there's a movability in the values that guide positive deviance beyond public health contexts,
1: oh, Absolutely.
0: How can this shape the way that we relate to one another, the way we parent, the way we coach, the way we teach? Talk to us about the movability of this approach beyond public health. Oh,
1: absolutely. So um, we talked about diabetes and uh, the value of self-disclosure. And you can imagine uh, that uh, the notion of self-disclosure uh, goes beyond uh, just diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, a highly stigmatized uh, issue because of the way narratives work and the way dominant narratives uh, work. But you can imagine, you know, as somebody who's experienced uh, uh, family life issues, uh how you talk about the addiction that uh, a child of yours may experience uh, and what that does for that child in terms of uh, their trajectory of Mm -hmm. feeling that, uh, yes, I can get help. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm asking for help, uh, which is what self-disclosure really is. So I think that uh, the transferability of the positive deviance approach is immense. Anytime you're dealing with a complex social problem Mm -hmm. where there's not a simple technical solution, if the problem is, well, there's darkness, well, flip on a switch. If you have access to a switch, you don't need positive deviance. Mm -hmm. To, uh, you know, it's a simple problem that can be addressed. But whenever you're dealing with a complex social problem, by which we mean a problem which has many underlying causes, uh, where there are hierarchies in terms of how people interact and relate, uh, where it is not easy to untangle, you know, (laughs) the partial differential effects of each variable on a dependent variable that you are interested in. Positive deviance is the go-to approach, in my opinion, because it slices through, it's a surgical strike. You use data to ask an improbable question. And uh, if indeed the answer is, yes, there do exist some people, then the answer is there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, so the transferability, you know, whether it's for school dropouts, whether it is for, uh, so we've done some work in... uh, Uh, The Netherlands looking at uh, the psychological resilience and coping mechanisms of immigrant kids. Mm. Because Netherlands is a country like many other countries in Europe. And we have found that, uh, you know, small little things that principals Mm -hmm. do uh, in certain schools uh, creates uh, uh, the conditions for immigrant students to thrive. For instance, a principal who calls... Five of his students every single day. Well, not the students, but their families. And we know, you know, when a principal's office calls and you're a parent, it's like, oh, Lord, you know, Mm -hmm, what is it mm -hmm. that my child has done? And the difference here is this principal only calls to say, ah, I have to tell you, Mr. and Mrs. Singhal or Mr. and Mrs. Harter, That your daughter, this morning, when one of her colleagues was fainting, uh, not just uh, caught her uh, in the fall, but also helped walk her to the clinic. And I am so proud of the way you've raised your child. It's a simple communicative act, Mm. which usually doesn't happen, because you hear from the principal's office when your child is in trouble. That's Mm -hmm. the norm. But when you get a call which is so unexpected, which violates the norm of expectancy Mm -hmm. and does it in a positive way, you better, you know, when you hear that, you call your husband and you tell him, guess what? The principal called. Oh, my (laughs) God, I love the fact that, you know, our child goes to the school. What does it do do to your child when he or she comes home and the mother says, Mm -hmm. guess what? The principal called. And what does it do for you to talk about this with you know, your other mm-hmm. relatives mm-hmm. and friends? Uh, what do you think is the parent-teacher interaction? Mm-hmm. Uh, how active are parents in this school? So it's a little more than just a simple phone call.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So what I'm saying is, the more complex the issue, uh, whether it's uh, acculturation and adaptation uh, respectful adaptation of immigrants in a community whether it is are there students who against all odds who are first generational who don't have english as their first language uh, who uh, work uh, 30 hours a week in a job who have family responsibilities but are there students who finish their courses in four years and with a 3.5 GPA? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then the wisdom is there. So I think it has tremendous versatility to address very complex social problems. Mm-hmm. And I hope that uh, its tentacles, the tentacles of the positive deviance approach will grow.
0: Mm. I certainly think it's part of your legacy, not only in our discipline, but but across the humanities and the social sciences in revolutionizing and advancing an an asset-based approach to engaging really difficult conversations and difficult challenges.
1: Thank you, Lynn. And I do believe one of the common findings, uh, if one were to take this to a level of abstraction across projects, is that almost always what makes the difference to save a life in a hospital, or what makes the difference for an immigrant kid or kids to feel that they are part of a social system that they don't necessarily belong to, is a communicative act. Mm. And so from the perspective of communication matters uh, for the health and well-being of others, it's that phone call. It's... um, uh, The space that's created uh, between uh, uh, a doctor and a patient when they decide to take a different route, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. fairly invisible in terms Mm -hmm. of the impact that it has. But these are small little communicative acts, Mm -hmm. things that Mm -hmm. happen in the spaces between people, Mm -hmm. Um, what happens between a knuckle and an elevator button, (laughs) because that elevator button is a space that's going to be touched by so many people. So I think it, uh, I would say that uh, uh, as somebody who uh, has an interactional view of health and well-being, uh, you become deeply mindful at the level of abstraction, that it's your discipline. It's an area of practice or praxis uh, where a lot of the answers to very difficult questions lie. And that has to be highly... uh, uh, highly, not just enchanting, but uh, invigorating mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, the belief mm-hmm. in uh, the work that one does.
0: Mm. The power of what it is that that we teach when we walk into a classroom and we talk about human meaning making and the importance of that for the way that we relate, the way we organize, mobilize. Challenge right, comes back to that that interactional meaning making
1: it does It does I mean His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, In a public discourse uh, When asked uh, what is the meaning and purpose of life and you know you're talking to somebody who? perhaps has reflected on this question a little more than maybe mm-hmm. ordinary mortals like us uh, said the whole purpose and meaning of life uh, is to spread the warm heart. And uh, then, uh, with a pause, he said, even more important, if you cannot spread the warm heart, see if you can refrain from spreading the cold heart. And in some ways, if you want to connect it with medicine, I mean, that's the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you can create goodness in the space between people, uh, a call to a mother, a little girl who can wag her finger at her grandpa in a playful manner, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of warm heart can be spreaded because we know that we are bound in webs of relationships and they mm-hmm. ripple.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Arvind, as we wrap up our conversation, how has your work with positive deviance transformed you personally?
1: Mm. Uh, as I think I said, Lynn, uh, you cannot not be changed. You know, mm-hmm. sort of It's a double negative. Uh, and I use that double negative with all humility, because, um, as I said, it's highly liberating. Uh, It fundamentally makes you believe that uh, wisdom exists and exists and lurks in places where you least expect it. And uh, that what you are, your role changes from being a doer, an interventionist, a do-gooder, to one who holds a space, who creates and holds a space, which is also a communicative function, you know, a sort of a coaching on the way, Uh, whereby uh, these processes of self-discovery can happen. I don't think positive deviance can be imposed. You cannot go in and say, oh, I've got this approach and I'm going to fix you. Mm -hmm. uh, Because that would be very antithetical Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, the approach. Uh, The book that I wrote from our experiences uh, with the hospital systems and reduction of staff infections was titled Inviting Everyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Healing Healthcare through positive deviance. So this notion of inviting everyone, a true value that's placed on diversity of experiences. The chaplain's experience, the transporter's experience, the janitor's experience, the Cook's experience um, is a very humane way. Then you begin to truly value diversity because mm-hmm. wisdom is lurking in places where you least expect it. Mm-hmm. It's not just oh yeah, you know we need uh, certain racial and uh, demographic types. In uh, you truly are looking at the entire spectrum of uh, experience in all its richness and uh, creating and holding. Uh, that uh, space Uh, so it's highly liberating it's highly Mm -hmm. joyful and you know it's the um, it's when you figure out what's making the difference it's like (gasps) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's here and it's been here and I've been an instrument and vehicle of having those for whom this matters to discover it themselves
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: humility uh, has to ride with you. Uh, and that's not uh, easy in an academic <laughs> environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh,
0: And not always rewarded.
1: And not always rewarded. But I think it's a narrative that uh, is a counter- uh, it's mm-hmm. an alter, alternative narrative to yeah. what is. And uh, I mean, that's, that's a space that uh, if you're interested in diffusion of innovation, I'm very interested in the spread of new narratives, mm-hmm. new mm-hmm. ways of doing things, mm-hmm. new ways of seeing and believing. And uh, so uh, fundamentally, uh, the interest all sort of comes together. It's mm-hmm. not detached mm-hmm. from... Uh, you know, the journey that one has had. And it's not that, you know, I'm at a better place now than I was 15 years ago before I discovered positive deviance because this has been an important part of the journey.
0: Thank you, Arvind. I, I hope listeners who've joined us take a thread of your um, serious, committed, enchanted um enthusiasm with positive deviance and are able to raise questions that they hadn't thought about before and explore alternative possibilities and have their own defining moments. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Lynn. If one can go places that one has never been through the somersaults that one can make with their own mind and heart, that's a good, safe place to be.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining Dr. Arvind Singhal and I for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. On our Facebook page, we provide links to some of Arvind's work, including his co authored book, Inviting Everyone Healing Healthcare Through Positive Deviance. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at W O U B. If you're moved to do so, please take time to rate and review this podcast at Apple Podcasts.